0: And I would invite you to turn in God's word, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're looking at the second part of uh, what we began to look at a couple of weeks ago in verses 12 to 17. This morning we're going to focus on verses 13 to 17 on being clothed in the splendor of Christ. And just before we get into things, two brief items I want to mention. One of them uh, is kind of corporate for all of us. Another one uh, is is a little more personal. The corporate thing just relates to Pastor Tim and Willie. As so many of you know, Tim is in London uh, finishing out his time there. He's been there for about a week uh, working on his PhD studies. He's uh, scheduled to come back on Wednesday. And then, of course, Willie and their kids are are continuing on here. They've had a little bit of sickness all the way around. Tim had a little bit on the front end of his time in London. I guess I understand he's doing better. There was also some sickness Uh, in their home with Willie and the kids, but they're doing better. But just continue to pray for them as that time finishes out and uh, be alert. And Lord willing, Tim will be back. They'll all be back with us this next week, this next Lord's Day. And then personally, just to mention, and some of you already know this, but a couple of weeks ago, I think I announced that uh, my son Tyler and daughter-in-law Katie, that they're expecting another child, which we're excited about in May of next year. But I've also been cleared to let you know that my daughter Lindsay and her husband Dave are also expecting another child also in next May of, uh, of next year. So uh, a lot of you know Dave and Lindsay. Some of you don't. They're a part of Redeemer Bible Church down in Elk Grove, uh, but they have a little son named Ryder, our grandson, and they're expecting another child. So uh, we're excited about that and just wanted to pass that along. And again, I know some of you already are aware of that as well. And, and we're rejoicing in lots of babies that are popping up here and there among us uh, at River City and beyond. So... Well, we are in Colossians 3, and again, I started into this passage a couple of weeks ago, verses 12 to 17, and Paul is exhorting believers in this whole chapter with practical implications of truths that he's declared in chapters 1 and 2 concerning the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. Having laid that foundation, he's now working out practical implications in chapter 3 in light of those truths. We're going to focus on verses 13 to 17, but as I did a couple of weeks ago, I want to read uh, beginning in verse 1 to give us a little sense of context. And as I read from chapter one or chapter 3, verse 1 through verse 17, I want to encourage you to listen for Paul's emphasis on what Christians are to be putting off and what we're to be putting on. And that's where the whole sense of, of being clothed, in Christ's splendor comes from, all that we're to put off and all that we're to put on in Christ. So I'll start in verse 1. Let's hear the eternal word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In all these, you too once walked when you were living in them. And this is the word of God. Let me lead us in prayer again as we seek his help. Our Father, again, we are so thankful for the riches of your love and mercy and blessings in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would fill us afresh with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That we might grow in knowing and pleasing and walking worthy of you. We pray that you would help us whom you have brought to repentance and faith in Christ. Help us to put off the old clothes of sin and to put on the new clothes of Christ's splendor. And please help me even now to faithfully proclaim what you've revealed for your glory and for the good of your people. Amen. Amen. Well, Paul is speaking to Christians. He's speaking to those who have been convicted of their sin before God. They've recognized their helplessness, their hopelessness, their guilt, and their condemnation under God's wrath. And by God's grace, they've repented. And they've put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the provision that God has made to forgive and to save and to reconcile and to bring people into the fullness of his blessings rather than the fury, if you will, of his curse. And so Paul's burden that these believers would be in that hope of the gospel, in their relationship with Christ, putting off all that is old and putting on all that is new in Christ. And so just by way of brief review, in verses 1 to 4 there in chapter 3, Paul is making a general exhortation for Christians to live a Christ-centered life, being focused on him and on things above, not on things on earth. And then in verses five through 11, he gets more specific in commanding believers to put to death and to put off all the evil clothing of our old sinful selves. And he specifies a number of things there, the sinful clothes, if you will, of our pre-Christian lives for those of us who are believers. And then in verses 12 to 17, Paul exhorts us to put on The new clothes of Christ's splendor. The new clothes that are consistent with our new life in Christ. And a couple of weeks ago, again, as we began to look at verses 12 to 17, we saw that there are three ways in verses 12 to 17 that Paul tells us how to do this. Three ways he tells us how to put on the new clothes of Christ's splendor. Two weeks ago we looked at the first two of those ways and then today we're going to look at the third. But again, just by way of review, the first way that we're to do this is there at the beginning of verse 12, namely that we're to embrace our corporate identity in Christ. We're to embrace our corporate identity in Christ. And so Paul begins verse 12 by saying, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He's speaking of believers' identity in Christ. Being God's chosen ones speaks of God's sovereign electing grace. And to be holy means that we who belong to Christ are set apart by God to his purposes and to his will. And to be beloved, of course, means that we are the objects of God's eternal, unchanging love in Christ. And all of these terms to be chosen and holy and beloved are really expressing covenantal language that God used in the Old Testament regarding His people, the Jews. For instance, in places like Deuteronomy 7 and elsewhere. But in Colossians 3, Paul is using this language to speak of both Jews and Gentiles. Even as he said there in verse 11, when he says, There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. He's speaking to every conceivable category of people that we could think of, or ultimately sort of summed up in all those different terms that he uses So he's using this covenantal language to speak of all of God's people. And if we're to put on the clothes of Christ's splendor, it begins with embracing our identity in Christ, our corporate identity in Christ, that we who belong to him are chosen, holy, and beloved. And then we saw the second way that we're to do this is to cultivate our corporate mentality in Christ, in view of our corporate identity, we're to, corporate, or we're, we're to cultivate a corporate mentality in Christ. And so again, verse 12, he says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Here it is, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So again, in view of our corporate identity, he identifies these five virtues that should characterize our corporate mentality as God's people or we could say our corporate mindset or attitude or disposition uh, toward God and toward one another. And this corporate mentality with these five different virtues that Paul identifies, they're not exhaustive because he uses this kind of language elsewhere, in fact it's used in by other New Testament writers as well. Uh, for instance, let me just point you to one passage, I'll just read it in Ephesians 4 verses 1 to 3. Uh, There, Paul says, and you see how this echoes what he's saying in Colossians 3, he says, I, therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So he's overlapping, he's echoing some of the same things that he's expressing here in Colossians 3. Uh, another place we see this, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, he says this, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So you see, this is a prominent focus of the corporate mentality that God's people are to have in view of our corporate identity. Well, understanding our identity, understanding the mentality that we're to put on leads to the third way we're to put on the clothes of Christ's splendor. And again, this is our focus today, and this is what we find in verses 13 to 17. And I'll say it this way, that we are to practice our corporate ministry. We're to practice our corporate ministry in Christ. And notice the logic of Paul's reasoning here. In view of our identity, who we are in Christ, in view of the mentality, the mindset and disposition that we are to have and to be putting on, here's what we're to do. Here are the ways we are to practice our corporate ministry in Christ with one another. And so in verses 13 to 17, Paul goes into detail about what this ministry is to look like. And I want us to all be thinking about this, not just in general out there kind of terms, but even as we move through these matters, to be thinking of them in how they relate to us here as God's people in River City at River City Grace. And I understand many of you are visiting and we are so very, very grateful for that. And perhaps you're a part of another local church, so you might think of these things in that context, or perhaps you're not a Christian, and that's something we would just pray for you to be hearing Christ and looking to Christ. Whatever the case may be, though, I want to encourage us to try to specify these things in our own lives and in our own relationships, and particularly in a local church such as River City Grace. So he gives us here a variety of elements, six different elements ultimately, I think, is what we see here, uh, that we're to keep practicing. And the focus of this, as we begin to move through these, is to understand that we're to minister to one another in a way that magnifies Christ. We're to minister to one another in a way that magnifies the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is really the big idea. This is the the main point of Paul's call, namely that we who belong to Christ are to minister to one another to magnify Jesus Christ, to magnify Jesus Christ. So what I want to do is move through these specific elements, and I'm going to do so somewhat briefly, but I want to move through them and then wrap up with some closing implications for us to think about as we see these different elements of of the corporate ministry in Christ that we're to practice with one another. So here's number one. First, corporate ministry involves bearing with one another, bearing with one another. And you see it there at the beginning of verse 13. It's very straightforward, bearing with one another. Now, from what I shared earlier in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, we heard that there as well, that we are to bear with one another. In other words, we're to minister to each other in a way that magnifies the forbearance of the Lord Jesus Christ who bears with his people. You say, well, what does it mean to bear with one another? It's very straightforward. It means to tolerate one another, it means literally to put up with one another, to endure with one another. And understanding that we are to do so amid all of the weaknesses. And amid all of the quirks that we all have that can tempt us to be irritable and impatient with one another. And that can tempt us to not bear with one another. It's interesting, Jesus uses this term back in Matthew chapter 17, verse 17 when he's speaking of what he refers to as this faithless and twisted generation. And he says, how long am I to bear with you? It's the same term. And so bearing with one another in a local church means bearing with those who can and often do annoy us and irritate us and frustrate us and disappoint us and bother us. It means bearing with each other's imperfections and difficulties in all kinds of areas. Just think about the diversity of of backgrounds, the diversity of ethnicities, the diversity of personalities, the diversity of life situations, the diversity of all of our own little quirky idiosyncrasies, and uh, our level of knowledge, our level of maturity, and different convictions we may have in all kinds of different areas. To bear with one another means that we accept one another, and that we put up with one another even as we seek humbly to help one another grow in our knowledge of and our submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. But it means there is to be an active sense of of bearing with and accepting. So in other words, to state it negatively, it means that we're not to reject or to dismiss or to write people off, however subtly we may do so, but rather we're to bear with one another in a way that magnifies Christ's forbearance with his people. Think about how he bore with his own disciples in their own unbelief, in their own ignorance, in their own frailties, and yet he bore with them even as he does with us. And beloved, we have the privilege, the joy, even as difficult as it is to bear with one another, to put up with one another even as we help each other grow in Christ. You know, I would guess many of you are like me, uh, you enjoy using Amazon, and uh, I purchase things here and there from Amazon, you probably do too, it's so easy, I could just purchase things right now as I'm preaching if I chose to, but I'm not going to, but if I buy something that I don't like, how convenient is it? I just punch a couple of little buttons, go to a place where I can drop it off, I drop it off, and then I'm done with it. I don't have to bear with it any And that's the convenience of Amazon. It's a convenience of living in an overly intoxicated consumeristic culture like we are, where if we don't like what we have, we just send it back and get rid of it. And beloved, that's a wonderful thing maybe in the world of, of, of consuming things, but we can easily let that attitude filter into our relationships with one another, can't we? Where we get tired of somebody, irritated with somebody, bothered by somebody, And again, we may not do it openly, but in our minds, we just sort of write them off, kind of take them back and and, and get rid of them, so to speak. Well, God's people are to be different. We're to magnify the forbearance of Christ by bearing with one another. The second element certainly relates to this. We are to forgive one another. We are to forgive one another. And so he continues on in verse 13 and. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. There's an emphaticness to this, a strong obligation that we are to forgive one another as the Lord has forgiven us. And so we're to minister to one another in ways that magnify the forgiveness of Christ. And how essential and how relevant this is, is it not? As we can very easily be hurt, be offended, be sinned against by one another. Sometimes that happens unintentionally. Sometimes it happens intentionally. Sometimes it may be over small and relatively insignificant things. At other times, they may be very big and deeply painful things. And we all understand that because we've been hurt and offended and sinned against by others. And yet, if we are God's people and we have drunk deeply of the forgiveness of God in Christ accomplished through his death on the cross, meaning that he has fully canceled all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame, forever he has removed the debt of our sin once and for all. The force of the exhortation is how quickly ought we be to deeply and eagerly forgive others who sin against us. Paul has spoken earlier in the letter of God's forgiveness in Christ accomplished at the cross through his blood Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14, he speaks of that. Also in Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. And it helps us understand that Christ is both the power and the pattern of our forgiveness. And there's countless other passages throughout all of Scripture that exhort us in similar fashion. Remember what Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, what we often refer to as the Lord's Prayer. That among other things, we pray, Father, forgive us our debts, as we forgive those who are our debtors. And then Jesus goes on to explain in verses 13, or I'm sorry, in verses 14 and 15 of Matthew 6, if you forgive others their trans, trans, trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses if we're not really knowing and tasting and living in the fullness of God's forgiveness, that being evident in forgiving others, then it means we don't really know the truth of his forgiveness and the freedom of his forgiveness. So as we seek to minister to magnify Christ among us, we bear with one another and we forgive one another. And this leads then to a third element that Paul speaks of in verse 14. Notice what he says. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the third element of our corporate ministry. It involves loving one another and to magnify the love of Christ in our love for one another. Now, when Paul says here, above all these, that little phrase... He's indicating that Christ's holy and supernatural love is of supreme and ultimate importance. In other words, all of the specific elements that he's addressing are all really summed up and bound up within the command to love one another. Uh, Some commentators have observed that there's a real sense in which love is sort of the outer garment in a, in, a, in a mixture of clothing. It's the outer garment that holds all the other garments of Christ's splendor together. So it's of supreme importance. And as Paul says, it's Christ's love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. In other words, we can also think of it somewhat like the, the, the super glue or the bonding agent, which is to drive and to direct and to hold everything together in the body of Christ. You may remember what Jesus said when he was asked a question in Matthew chapter 22 about what is the greatest commandment, and he answered by saying the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind, and the second is like it. What is it? To love your neighbor as yourself. He says everything is bound up, is summed up within those two commandments, which very much relate to one another, because to love God is to love as God loves, and so to love one another. And so these elements are very, very clear. We're to bear with one another. We're to forgive one another. We're to love one another with the love of Christ. And then fourth, Paul gets continually specific. We are to also preserve peace with one another, to preserve peace with one another. And this is what he says in verse 15. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. And so in our love and in our care and in our ministry with one another, we're to minister in a way that magnifies the peace of Christ. Now understand, Paul is speaking these matters and addressing these matters in a corporate context. He's not talking primarily about the peace of Christ ruling individually in our hearts, though that is a reality, because in Christ and through Christ, we have peace with God, and and he promises us peace, even as Jesus speaks of that in John chapter 14, verse 27, and we, we see such statements elsewhere. But he's not primarily talking about peace in our our own individual lives, but rather peace corporately, that there would be the absence of or the resolution of conflict, that there would be a disposition that would seek reconciliation. And so the sense of Christ's peace ruling in our hearts means that his peace is to act as an umpire, or a referee in deciding and resolving any conflicts that we might have. That's the sense of what the Greek term for ruling means there. It's like an umpire or a referee uh, that has the final say in, in resolving a conflict. Now, we can easily have conflicts for so many different reasons, can't we? Some of them good, some of them bad, some of them fairly petty and selfish and preferential, other conflicts that can be very serious and very significant. Paul is assuming that we're going to have these problems. This is why we have to bear with one another, forgive one another, love one another, and resolve conflicts and preserve peace with one another because they're going to come up. But the point that he's making is that we're to magnify the peace of Christ by letting his peace determine the outcome of the conflict. In other words, since Christ has reconciled us to God, he has brought us to peace with God through his life and through his death and his resurrection, we who have been reconciled are to be reconcilers. We who have been brought to peace with God are to be peacemakers. We're to preserve the peace of Christ among us this means that we don't ignore or sweep under the rug any number of issues that we may have to deal with, whether they're real or imagined, whether they're big or small, petty or serious, but it means that we have a disposition that is being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, which is how Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3. We're to be peacemakers. We're to be reconcilers. We're to, we're to be committed to preserving peace with one another. Peace with one another. That's interesting. Back in Colossians 3, verse 15, Paul says that we're to let the peace of Christ rule. Why? Because we were called in one body. And he's speaking here again of our identity. Because of all of us who are in Christ, we're all chosen of God. We're all holy before God in his work. We're all beloved of him. We're called in one body. And So what this means is that we're always to have the bigger picture in view. So easily we get our toes stepped on. We get our feelings hurt. Something happens. And again, it, it may and often is a real thing but then it's a matter of how do we respond to that? Are we seeking to preserve the peace and striving to magnify Christ's peace? One other note about this before we move on. It's interesting there at the very end of verse 15, Paul abruptly says, and be thankful, and be thankful. Now, he says much in Colossians about being thankful to God, He's spoken of this back in chapter one, again in chapter two. We see it again here in chapter three. He says a lot about being thankful to God. But why does he say it here? Right after he's talked about preserving the peace. Well, it could be, and I am persuaded it may be, because he has a specific sense of being thankful, calling us to be thankful for other believers. And to make it even more specific, To be thankful for other believers with whom we may be having a conflict. He calls us to be thankful. When's the last time? Let me just ask you this question as I had to ask myself. (laughs) When's the last time that you specifically thanked God for a brother or sister in Christ with whom you were having a conflict? Ouch. I don't do that very often. That's not the first impulse of my heart is to say, oh, thank you for this brother, this sister. Thank you that they're chosen of you and holy and and beloved. Thank you so much for how you're using them in my own life. And that's not usually where I go. But I think that's part of what Paul is perhaps expecting and exhorting. That even within conflict, even as we're striving to preserve peace, that we have a regard of thankfulness for the people that God has brought into our lives, even those with whom we have conflict even with those with whom we're having problems and challenges. Well, this leads then to a fifth element, and you see how all of these are intertwined. They're all bound up within what it means to magnify Christ in practical ways in our corporate ministry to one another. But I'll call this the corporate ministry that involves discipling one another, that involves discipling one another. Notice what he says in verse 16. He's talking about this when he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There he's speaking of thankfulness again. We're to to minister to one another in a way that magnifies and advances the word of Christ in one another's lives lives. And that's why I say discipling, helping one another grow in Christ. And I'm using that in perhaps its broadest sense of, of having that mindset and that disposition. Now the word of Christ here, it's interesting when Paul uses that little phrase, the word of Christ here likely refers not mainly to all of the words that Christ declared which were indeed the Father's word and ultimately refer to the whole of the word of God. I mean, that might be implied. But when Paul uses that phrase, the word of Christ, there's more of a sense that he's talking about the word about Christ. The word about Christ. And ultimately, of course, this is what the entire word of God is all about. It's about God's redeeming and saving purposes in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what Paul is exhorting is that the word about Christ, the the word of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, is to be dwelling among us and in us richly. Paul uses almost this same language back in chapter 1, verse 28, when he says, with reference to the Lord Jesus Christ... He says, Him we proclaim. You see, it's Christ. It's Christ he's proclaiming. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone in Christ. Do you hear echoes of that statement in chapter 1, verse 28 with what Paul says here in verse 16 of chapter 3? Elsewhere, for instance, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul tells the Corinthians, hey, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he goes on to, to speak about that. And what he's saying is that he was preaching Christ. He was wanting the word of Christ, the word about Christ, to be the center point, to be the focal point of the life of God's people, for him And his word, the fullness of who he is, to dwell richly in us. And again, he's speaking of that mainly corporately. Sure, there's an individual sense in which the word of God is to be dwelling in us, the reality, the word, the glory of Christ, to be dwelling in us individually. But he's talking about this in a corporate context. And so in the corporate life ministry and worship of the church, uh, the fullness of the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ is to dwell richly. It's to be abundantly, extravagantly evident and present among us as revealed in God's word. It means that Christ and all that Christ is and all of God's purposes in Christ is to permeate every aspect of our life and ministry and worship as a local church. And of course there in verse 16 he goes on to say that this happens as we teach one another, meaning that we instruct one another with God's word about Christ, We admonish one another, which has to do with exhorting and correcting, and at times even warning one another. We admonish one another, and we're to do it with all wisdom, meaning that we're to exercise skill and discernment in not only knowing and understanding God's truth regarding Christ, but how that brings to bear in a specific person's life at a specific time, that we're to have skill and wisdom and discernment in that. And notice also how singing, corporate singing, is a part of all of this. Where Paul says that we admonish and that we, or that we teach and that we admonish, he says, with psalms and hymns and, and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Now, There's debate about what each one of those terms regarding singing actually means. Most likely, psalms is pretty straightforward. It's referring to the Old Testament Psalter, those 150 Uh, songs that God has given his people, hymns is perhaps referring to songs that are more specifically about the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. Even as it's believed back in chapter 1 verses 15 to 20, uh, that passage where Paul is declaring the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ was most likely a hymn in the early church. And then spiritual songs is perhaps referring to spontaneous songs that are prompted by God's Spirit. And of course, in our position now, in in the day in which we live, in all the years of church history before us, what a rich body of, of songs God has given to us. With all the psalms and hymns that are bound up within His Word and other spiritual songs that have been produced, some of which we've sung this morning and we'll sing another one before we're done today. And all of those are means that God has ordained by which we help admonish and teach one another to the end that the word of Christ, the glory of Christ, the hope of the gospel would be dwelling richly among us. And some of you know that there's a parallel passage to this over in Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul uses very, very similar language in talking about being filled with the Spirit. And through being filled with the Spirit, how we're to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And he echoes some of the thoughts here and helps us understand that to have the word of Christ dwelling in us is parallel to being filled with the Spirit. Because the Spirit, as we know from John chapter 15 and 16, seeks to magnify Christ And so, beloved, this is a a significant element. We're to bear with one another, forgive one another, love one another, preserve peace with one another, share in discipling one another, even in corporate gatherings such as this. And then finally, this leads to the sixth element we see, that corporate ministry involves worshiping with one another, worshiping with one another, and notice how Paul brings all of this together in verse 17. He says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so we're to minister to one another in a way that magnifies the name of Christ. This is very much echoing things Paul has already said. And again, this really brings everything together and you hear how comprehensive, and how all-encompassing the Christian life is intended to be. It's not just relegated to an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, or maybe a little bit more time on a Sunday night, or maybe something else during the week. Beloved, this is all of life, all the time, comprehensive, all-encompassing. He says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, I would also highlight that with Paul saying this, it really forms sort of a bookend to what he said earlier in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, where he says there, Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. That's one end of the bookend, and then chapter 3, verse 17 is the other end, and everything in between is talking about how we are to worship with one another in the riches of all that God has given us in the name of Christ. And to speak of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul is certainly not giving a magical formula or a little incantation to be used on a, on a, on a basis of expecting something's going to happen. But to have a regard for the name of the Lord Jesus means to know and to trust and to walk in the fullness of who He is, the fullness of all that He has done, the fullness of what He has given and called us to within all of God's purposes. It's to be encompassed with all of Him. And again, in every part of our lives, our words, our deeds. When we gather and when we're separated, we're to be doing all in a manner that's consistent with the fullness of God's person and work in the Lord Jesus. And among other things, this reminds us that true Christian worship is not primarily an event or an experience Sometimes we even think of it like even during our service, we, when we're singing, well, that's worship. Well, no, that's a part of worship, as we understand, both toward God and even with one another. It's a part of worship, but worship is all-encompassing. It's not just an event, just, not just an experience. It encompasses our entire lives, affections and ambitions and activities, relationships, word, deeds, everything. So, beloved, this is what God calls us to and how we are to practice our corporate ministry with one another in a way that seeks to magnify Christ. It's a super Christ-centered, bearing, forgiving, loving, preserving peace, discipling, and worshiping together. Also that Christ, in the fullness of his forbearance and his forgiveness and his love and his peace and his word and his name would be magnified. Well, there are many, many implications that we could think of. I wanna just highlight a few for us to chew on and I'll just sort of mention these and then we'll wrap our time up. Let me just share a few implications in light of what it means to practice our corporate ministry in this way and putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, just to make very clear, Christ is working to build and to clothe his body, his church with his splendor. This is the work that God is doing in and through Christ, in and through his spirit, now in building and clothing his body with his splendor. This is his design. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's God's design to reveal his splendor in Christ, in and through the church. And this encompasses all of us. Helps us understand the church is a supernatural community. It requires God's supernatural power for the supernatural display of his splendor and his glory. So he's working to build and to clothe his body with his splendor. A second implication is this, and I mentioned this one a couple of weeks ago. And that is that Christianity is personal, but it is not private. It's personal, but it is not private. And I'm stealing that phrase, as I shared a couple of weeks ago as well, from Mark Dever, uh, from whom I first heard that said. And the point of saying that is to understand that to have union with Christ is to have union with his people. To belong to Christ, who is the head of his body, is to belong to his body. And this is to be lived out then in devotion to other Christians in a local church. And it means that we can't be faithful, fruitful Christians without sharing fully in God's purposes through the local church. So Christianity is personal, but it's not private. We belong to the body of Christ if we belong to Christ at all. Related to that, a third implication is this. Every Christian is a minister every Christian is a minister. If you are a Christian, if you are one whose identity is that you are chosen, you are holy, you are beloved of God, God has brought you to faith in himself, he has made you to be a minister to others. You are his saint, you are his holy one, and he intends to use you in ministry to others. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul speaks about this in a very direct way when he says of Jesus that he gave, in verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints, that's all of us who belong to him, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This means that to be a minister is not some isolated category uh, that maybe some of us are in. Yes, some of us have various gifts, various aspects of our calling, but beloved, we're all ministers and we're all to minister to one another and God is seeking to equip all of us for this ministry of bearing with one another, forgiving one another and on down the line. Well, another implication that's very much related to that, a fourth one, I just have a couple, a few more, is that ministry is fundamentally relational. Ministry is fundamentally relational. In other words, it's not mainly about titles that we might have. It's not mainly about tasks that we might do. It is fundamentally about relationships that we share in Jesus Christ. That's the essence of true ministry. Loving one another in a way to magnify Christ is relational, and we can't escape that. And that's why, again, God's design for life in a local church is to involve a deepening devotion, a mutual devotion in our commitment to relationships with one another to magnify Christ and so that he would be glorified. Well, a fifth element, or I'm sorry, fifth implication, just two more, in light of that, it helps us understand that every Christian matters. Every Christian matters. In the same way that every single part of our physical body matters matters to the health and to the proper functioning of our physical body, so it is spiritually. Every Christian, everyone who is a member of the body of Christ, has a role to play in helping the overall health of the body. Paul argues for that extensively in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, when there was all kinds of division and pride and arrogance going on among the Corinthian believers. And they were saying, well, these parts are really important, but these other parts are not so important. Paul's saying, no, every single part is important. It's not primarily about even how you're spiritually gifted as much as the fact that you're a believer and he calls you to love others for the glory of Christ. Every member matters. And then a final implication is simply this. It's the reality that life in the local church can be messy and painful and hard, but also indescribably sweet and life-giving. Paul assumes it's hard. That's why he needs, he's he's compelled by the Spirit of God to give these kinds of exhortations. Many of us know that by experience. Whenever there's conflict, difficulty, whatever it may be, at, at any kind of level, for any kind of reason, it's always difficult and hard. And yet God seeks to work through those things to forge us more and more into the image of Christ, not only individually but collectively, in a way that produces fruit that is indescribably sweet and life-giving. Psalm 133, a brief little psalm but a rich psalm, speaks of the sweetness of this kind of unity that God seeks to produce. He says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. The imagery that he's using there is ultimately speaking of blessing and of vibrancy and of flourishing and of life. And you see, that's why God has designed his body to function in this way and to corporately minister to one another, to put on the clothes of Christ's splendor, because it's his means of, of bringing us ever more fully into the fullness of his life and to know the riches of his blessing in Christ that we become that much more equipped to minister to one another and to unbelievers in the world and to share the hope of that life with those who are yet spiritually dead and in darkness. So yes, life in the local church not only can be, it is messy and painful and hard, but it's indescribably sweet and life-giving. And praise God for countless evidences of how we see that at work among us in so many, many different ways. So I just close by asking this, what's the next step of trust and obedience that God has for you today? What's the next step? And Maybe to say it another way is how is God calling you to trust and obey him? Even more specifically, who might he be calling you to minister to in a way that magnifies Christ? Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, please help all of us to walk worthy as your chosen and holy and beloved children. Help us to be clothed ever more fully with the splendor of Christ, to compassionately and kindly and humbly and meekly and patiently seek to minister to each other in these ways that would magnify the splendor of our Lord Jesus for the good and the benefit and blessing of those who belong to you as well as for the salvation of those who are yet dead in their sins. Father, may you be pleased to continue to multiply your work among us we thank you and trust you to do so in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.